Good morning. Welcome. It is so good to see all of you here. It's good to be inside this morning as well. Welcome to our visitors. We are glad that you joined us to worship this morning. I'd like to make you feel right at home. Be part of us here as we worship the Lord. Enjoyed the Christmas songs again this morning. Elliot, thank you for that. It gives us a uh, group of songs that we don't typically sing. So I really enjoy that. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Thank you, Father, for yet another opportunity to come into your presence to worship you. And as we sang about songs of your birth, Lord, we also reflect on what that meant and what it continues to mean and the work that you did here on earth and finished it by giving your life on Calvary and then rising from the dead and then going to prepare a place for those who put their faith in you. And Lord, I pray that this morning we would anticipate that day. We invite you into this service. Lord, we ask your spirit to open our eyes to truth. We also pray that you would guide our discussions later on this morning as well. In the worthy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Decided this morning to continue a series of messages. It's actually been a little while since I've preached on Sermon on the Mount. And I've been in the Beatitudes. This morning, I'd like to look at the third Beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 1863, the American Civil War was raging. And on July the 1st, the forces of the Union Army and the Confederate Army clashed at a place called Gettysburg. Probably many of you have visited the place before. And for the next three days, there was intense and fierce fighting, the, probably the worst battle of the Civil War. And between the two armies, uh, not necessarily on location, but between the two armies, I think there was approximately 170,000 troops. And in this particular battle of, of, the, of those three days, there were 23,000 Union casualties, which included dead, wounded, or missing which was a fourth of the Union Army. And there were 28,000 Confederate casualties, which was a third of their army. So you get an idea of the scope of this very terrible event. Well, a number of months later, there was an effort to... um, Many of these soldiers had been been buried very quickly in, uh, in graves, and so there was an effort to memorialize these soldiers and to establish a cemetery there with some memorials as well. And so there was a, a commission or something decided to, to have an event. And so they decided to invite a very famous orator to come and, and give a speech. This man's name was Edward Everett. He was a former president of Harvard. He was also a former secretary of state and a former senator, very well known, one of the leading orators of, of that time. And if that doesn't maybe make much impact on us, but in that day, of course, there was no media as we, as we know it, except for possibly print. And, and so for, for someone to be able to speak well and to be able to uh, stand in front of an audience and, and give a speech was, was quite something. So the date was established for this event, and it was in, meant to be in October. Well, this Mr. Everett said he needs more time to prepare. So they postponed it a couple of weeks. 
and the date was on November the 19th of 1863. And just a week or two before the event, President Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, was also invited to come and, and share a few remarks as well. The event came, Edward Everett stood up, and for two hours, by memory, he gave quite a speech and stood before a crowd. And after he sat down, President Lincoln stood up and proceeded to give the Gettysburg Address. Now, I, I think we memorized that in school, and probably some of you did as well. But he did it in about two minutes. And in the speech, he mentions that the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. And yet the speech has been memorialized for, well, well over 100, 150 years. What was the difference between the two? After the event, this Mr. Everett, the famed orator, he wrote President Lincoln a note. And in the note he said, I wish that I could flatter myself that I had come as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. Blessed are the meek. What does it mean to be meek? I'd like to uh, start with just the first couple verses of the Beatitudes. If you can, stand with me. Let's read these. We're going to stop where, uh, where the message begins. So we're just going to read to verse 5 this morning. Shall we read it together? And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to ask one of the ushers to get me a glass of water, if you don't mind. <clears throat> Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, this beatitude reminds us, these beatitudes are descriptions of, of a different kingdom, of a different way. And again, we are reminded by this one that the Christian is completely different from the world. He comes with a whole different set of qualities. And the reason is, is because he's a new man. And when I, this morning, I'm going to use the, 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 the uh, gender term he or him, but it means mankind, okay? So when I use it, I mean mankind in general. He's a new man. He's a new creation. He belongs to a completely different kingdom. And so the world does not understand a kingdom man like this. They don't understand how it, it can be this way. And you might say that a person who displays the Beatitudes, thank you very much, is maybe what you could call an enigma, an enigma to the world. And what, what does that mean? What you see out of the person does not make sense. It's not necessarily contradictions, but it's hard to explain. How can a person be meek? And because all of us here are human this morning, we all have human nature. We know what comes naturally. And as we go through these beatitudes, we realize that this isn't natural. It's not natural to be poor in spirit. It's not natural to mourn over sin. It's not natural to be meek. And I think maybe sometimes the word meek has maybe gotten a bit of a bad rap. I, I was thinking this morning, I can't quite remember how it went, but I remember years and years ago seeing a cartoon or something of 
it was a man and a woman, and I think the man's sitting in his chair at the table, and he looks very, you know, downcast, his head is down, and she's kind of glowering above him with her hands on her hips and, and giving him a piece of her mind, and she's saying something like, if the meek are going to inherit the earth, you've got a couple thousand acres coming your way, something like that. And so many times, meekness is equated with weakness or wimpiness or something like that. Well, we know, we're going to look this morning in Scripture, there's enough examples and scriptures that we know that's not the case. But again, um, as we look at this one, understand, and I'm going to show us some of the scriptures that this is a spirit fruit. You can't just do this, all right? This isn't something you're just going to be able to figure out. Meekness is a quality that comes from change. And another thing I want to point out again, and I think it's been said here before, is as you go through the Beatitudes, it is so it's becoming more clear to me. I don't know that I ever really saw it this way. How they build upon each other. You cannot be meek if you haven't already been poor in spirit. You cannot be meek if you haven't mourned over sin and had to humble yourself. And so there's this progression. And on this one, as, as you look at the first two, we already looked at blessed are the poor in spirit. When we come to a place of, of poverty of self, we recognize that in our sinfulness, we cannot, we cannot meet God's standards. It's impossible. And we come with that poverty of spirit. And he said, to those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heavens. In other words, that's the entrance in when you find yourself there and when you humbled yourself. Those who mourn, they find comfort in their mourning, but they, they've seen themselves as they are. So the first two, you could say, might be a response directly to, to God's work in my life. Poor in spirit, my relationship with God mourning for what I've done against God. But now in this third one, this is kind of the first one now where it starts to filter out more into how I relate to people. And one of the things I read an author say, it's, some, it's a little bit, this is human nature, but in the first two, poor in spirit and those that mourn, it's one, for us, it's one thing for us to be convicted of sin and to acknowledge our sin before God and say, yep, I admit it. It's another thing for someone else to point it out and say, you have a problem, and you have sin. And so blessed are the meek plays very much into how do I see both myself and how do I see myself in relation to other people. Remember here that the book of Matthew was written for a Jewish audience. Matthew's writing this to Jews. And so, again, their idea of kingdom has to be one of conquest and of surely someday Messiah comes and restores us militarily and so Jesus, again, as he, as he lays out the Beatitudes, he shows clearly, this is not the way you thought. This is a different way. It's a kingdom way. Instead of fighting and striving for conquest, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. I already pointed out that in the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. That points to our own weakness, our own um, inability to fulfill God's moral law. We grapple with our sinfulness, who we are. That leads us to mourning. Mourning is the path of repentance. And you, you, when you read, the, uh, Paul talks about this. I think it's in Romans chapter 7. Even in that, that thing of, uh, Paul says, I can't quite quote it right now, but the idea is, is the things I want to do, I don't do. And then the things that I want to do, I don't do. And he's talking about the warring of the flesh and spirit his desires. He wants to please God, but in his flesh, he still, he, he keeps failing. 
And then he ends up by saying that, you know, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? That's kind of the words of a mourner, someone that sees themselves as God sees them and yet throws himself on the mercy of God. God, I need help here. So blessed are the meek. Now this leads to a deeper searching of the heart. I don't instinctively like it when someone else points out my faults and my failures. It's much easier for me to condemn myself than to allow others to to do that in my life. And it's far more humbling and humiliating for me to allow other people to put the searchlight on me than it is for me to do it myself. It takes a lot of of humility. So the word meek, humble, we see a lot of um, synonyms there. There's there's humility, there's lowliness of mind is also described in the scripture. So I thought maybe the best thing would be just to go through a couple of examples. I think we all know what, kind of what the word means, but I want us to think about how this, how this affects us this morning and make this very personal. A couple of examples from the Old Testament. Think about Abraham. Abraham and his nephew Lot, and there they stand on whatever, wherever they're at. I'm assuming they're up on a hill. They're needing to split ways. Their flocks, their herdsmen are fighting. And Abraham, as the perfect gentleman, he could have demanded his rights, but as a perfect gentleman, he says, Lot, you choose first. And Lot chooses the well-watered plains of Jordan. And there's no, pro- there's no protest from Abraham. There's no um, manipulating. There's none of that. Abraham simply takes it. And without murmur or complaint, he accepts the outcome. What about Moses? Moses is actually called uh, the meekest man on earth. And the place where he's called that is in Numbers chapter 12. And what happened was Miriam, his his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron, they came to Moses at one point in the beginning of Numbers chapter 12. And they said, says, so they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? It says, and the Lord heard it. They spoke out against Moses, probably some jealousy going on. Aren't we equal with him? Has God actually only spoken through him? And then the next verse, right after that, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Moses, the meekest man on earth. Now, what does that mean Moses was weak? Look at him. He's being assaulted by his siblings for his position, ultimately. Now, we all know Moses is not a weak man. It takes tremendous guts to stand up to Pharaoh through all that process and the plagues. It takes tremendous guts to lead a huge group of people out of captivity and to get up to the Red Sea and to be blocked in. It takes tremendous guts to step out in faith and go through parted waters. It takes tremendous courage to keep going when the people keep complaining. And now his own family is saying, who are you, Moses? What makes you qualified to be above us? And God points out that he heard it, and he points out that Moses was the meekest man on the earth. Well, God's comments, I didn't, ha- I didn't have the scripture here uh, to quote it, but God's comments in that dialogue was, he, he, tells Mos- he tells Miriam and Aaron, he says, he says something to the effect of, to a prophet, I show myself through visions and dreams. That's how a prophet knows what to say, but not to Moses. I speak with him as a friend face to face. He hears my voice. You're speaking against my man here. And God was not very pleased. And we know what happened. Miriam was struck with leprosy. Moses interceded. And they went from there. 
but Moses could have claimed his rights, could have stood up and, and rebuked his siblings. He didn't. He didn't. He let God be his advocate. Moses also, in meekness, he had amazing possibilities ahead of him back in Egypt. He was a prince. He was a prince in Egypt. He was son of Pharaoh's daughter. And yet when God called him to leave and to go lead his people, Moses humbly and meekly accepted God's call and laid aside everything else, the pleasures of sin that he could have had, he laid aside. Another person in the Old Testament, David, anointed as a very young man to be king. He was to be the next king of Israel. Obviously, at the time, Saul was very unqualified to be king, and yet God kept him there for a number of years, and Saul harassed David. He chased him. He did all kinds of unkind things to him, tried to kill him. David waited patiently on God's timing. He meekly and humbly accepted that whatever is coming to him is from God. You see so much of his agony in the Psalms, just struggling with this. And yet he accepted God's timing and he waited. And eventually God, after many years, God placed him where he had called him to be. Of course, our ultimate example is Jesus himself. Jesus beckons his followers with these words. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Again, the picture of Jesus as meek, certainly not weakness. He was very, very willing to stand up to those, to the Pharisees, to those who, who stood against him. He was very courageous in purging the temple. If you remember those stories, he goes in, he cleans out the temple. And he courageously took on all kinds of abuse. But even in that, in that strength, there was a meekness, a lowliness, a willingness to lay down himself and to not put himself forward. Some have, mistake, have a mistaken notion that to be meek is to be timid, to be non-assertive, to be cowardly. Jesus was certainly none of those. He demonstrated how a person can be bold, courageous, assertive, but also meek and lowly. Another man in the New Testament, Stephen. Uh, Stephen was quite a man, and when the church came together, they needed to, to uh, ordain some deacons, and they needed some help. And it says that as the church was looking for these men, it says they chose Stephen. He was one of seven men that was chosen to be part of this group to help. And it says, the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Later on, it says... In some of his preaching, it says, and Stephen, full of faith and power. So you've got faith, you've got power, you've got Holy Ghost in filling. That sounds like a powerful man to me. That sounds like a man who, who is uh, doing what God wants him to do. And it says he did great wonders and miracles among the people. So he's a man to be reckoned with. And yet, what happens when persecution comes against him? There he is. He's, he, he makes his defense before the council, and they take him out to stone him. And as they are there, this is the mark of meekness. As they are there stoning him, it says, Stephen called upon God saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge, which is basically the prayer of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Meekly uh, humbling himself before God, not simply just giving up, but that's a sign of strength, being able to lay down his life and take, take the abuse. 
We could look at a lot more examples in Scripture about, about meekness. There's a lot of Scriptures on this. But I want to point out that every one of these examples, these people were human, all right? They also had human tendencies to deal with. They also had to be changed because it's not natural. It's not natural to humble ourselves, all right? We're born with the desire to, to be something and to, um, to take care of ourselves, first of all. That's, that's what's natural for us. So I don't think when it talks about blessed are the meek, I don't believe he's referring to people who are naturally mild, mild-tempered. Maybe their personality is kind of phlegmatic. Um, there's people like that. That's a natural tendency. This is something different. This is something that happens inside that God does by changing us. It's a fruit of his spirit within us. It's a product of the Holy Spirit working in us and changing us from the inside out. I want to look now at a passage here in Galatians chapter 5. This is where it describes fruit of the Spirit. And I want you just to absorb this as we, as we read through this. One of these is meekness, but uh, don't miss the others as well. Galatians 5, to 26 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another and envying one another. All right, so we know these. Fruit. Fruit is what is, is we bear fruit. So if spirit fruit is being, is being born out, of course, it's evidence that Christ is working within us. The Holy Spirit is there. But verse 24, after it mentions all these things that are, that are spirit fruit, he says... They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. So it is dealing with, it is dealing with our flesh. It's having to crucify that, be, become dead to our former ways of thinking, become dead to our own selfishness. But then in verse 25, when he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. That's kind of an inter- interesting way to say it. What's the difference between living in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit? He says, if you have one, then do the other. I looked at that a little bit. If we live in the Spirit, I believe that's indicating that the Spirit is also living within us, all right? We are given the, uh, this Holy Spirit after the new birth. But to walk in the Spirit means something along the lines of to keep in step. So you're walking with another person, especially I've noticed sometimes, you know, what we walk with our children. I walk with my children. And when they're small, you know, their pace isn't quite the same as mine, so I'm just walking at a normal speed, and they're hustling, <laughs> trying to keep up, you know, because it doesn't quite match. But the idea here is that we keep in step with the Spirit. As the Spirit moves, we respond. As the Spirit prompts, we respond. And there's this idea that we are, we are very much connected with God through the Spirit, and we're, we're aware of what He's doing in us and what He's prompting us to do. So keep in step with the Spirit. That has some practical implications as well. But think about that. So as we summarize what meekness is, according to our examples and according to some of these scriptures, meekness, when he says, blessed are the meek, to be meek is essentially a true view of oneself. True as in the way God sees it, all right? Not not the way we kind of tend to think of ourselves, but it's actually the true view of who I am. 
And that's why you see people, when they, when they demonstrate meekness, there's a humility there that recognizes that, I mean, even Moses in his, in his meekness. Now, he's, he's courageously following God in leadership, but he has this awareness that he is so unable on his own. And he has this awareness that he doesn't know what to do, and he keeps crying out to God. And you see that through all these examples. So it's essentially a true view of oneself. It's my attitude towards myself, and it's an expression of that attitude in relationship to others. So if I see myself the way God sees me, how is that affecting then how I'm relating to other people? No longer is it all about me, right? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the other person. That's meekness. And as I said before, you cannot be meek without, first of all, going down the path of being poor in spirit, mourning for sin. And as God is changing you, he starts, he starts to help you realize that you need to be humble because pride continually wants to come up in us and express itself. This leads me to see there can be no pride in my life. And ultimately, meekness is, I would call it the antithesis. It's the opposite. It's, it's completely different from the messages that are streaming into our consciousness today. And by message, I mean, I mean culture. I mean, we are bombarded with messages. And a lot of these messages that we are being faced with today are messages like, you got to demand your rights. You got to stand up for your rights. Be true to yourself. Be your true self. Remember, meekness is really the true view of myself. But the world's message is, be true to yourself because yourself is really something. Uh, you need to express yourself. Find your voice. Reclaim autonomy in your life. Be authentic. Often those messages, maybe they're not explicitly wrong, but the idea typically is, is that put yourself forward. You are, you are worth it. And yet meekness is, is, is looking at ourselves through God's filter. How does God see me? God loves me, of course. I'm special to him. That's true. But the only way that can even be life-changing to me is if I see myself for who I really am and in humility come in repentance before him and realize that I need him because in, in my own self, I have nothing. I am nothing without him. I wonder if maybe some of this, probably every generation has its struggles I'm right at the beginning of the, of the millennial generation, which starts in about the 80s till coming of age in the 2000s. And so every generation kind of has their thing. I know one of, the, one of the emphases of the millennials is relevance and to, to be something. Not necessarily in a prideful way, but we want to matter. We want to we be something. And I would say on this idea of authenticity, we are most authentic when we have this fruit of meekness. Because out of this... We have, I already said it, we have a true view of ourselves, and with that comes a gentleness and a humility. You, just, you see that. Jesus, when he encounters those who need to be spoken harshly to, like the Pharisees, he did it. And yet, in his gentleness and humility, a little child could come sit on his lap. That's like, that's like power. That's power under control. That's strength under control. And it's like, I, I, I think sometimes when you see uh, these big Belgian draft horses out, just these massive animals. And they can get into a plow and a disc and they can pull and it's amazing. And yet they can stand there very docilely as a little child comes up and, and pets them and, and, and rubs them. And the idea is, is 
it's a strength that's under control. It's a power that is not, it's not about exalting self, but it's there for the honor and glory of God. That's meekness. Meekness means we don't have to worry anymore about what people say. We have God's view of ourselves. We don't have to worry about what they say about us because it's not about us. We don't need to pity ourselves. We don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to promote ourselves because ultimately we're done with ourselves. God is now our advocate. You see this very clearly in the man Saul. Uh, Saul was zealous. He was zealous to wipe out the church. He was zealous because he thought he was doing the right thing. And he was, he was on a tear and he was imprisoning people. And you know the story. He's going on the road to Damascus. He's going to go and he's, he's going to zealously go and root out this, this heresy that he thinks it is. And as he's going down the road to Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven just blasts him. And he is blinded and he basically falls to the ground. And he is overwhelmed. And notice, I want to notice two things about his response to this. This is what happens when a person has an encounter with God and they suddenly see a reality that they had not seen before. This is Saul's testimony. First of all, when the light comes, Saul asks, Who are you, Lord? Who are you? And from heaven or however in his consciousness, he says, I am Jesus. I am the one you're persecuting. Now, Saul didn't know it. He didn't, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and Jesus reveals himself. So Saul's first question is, who are you, Lord? And when Jesus reveals himself, Saul's next question is, what do you want me to do? And you see a complete change in Saul's life. He becomes the Apostle Paul, becomes a man who is bold for Christ, unashamed of the gospel of Christ, he says. And, he can, and he, his life completely turns around, and the very people he persecuted, he now is considered a brother to. And you see the rest of the New Testament, so much of his writing uh, comes out of that transformational experience. But that encounter with God results in us saying, who are you, Lord? And in that question, we're also asking, who am I, Lord? And there, he, as, as Saul's lying there, and that light shining upon him, I see, I see this, this thing running through his head, like, what have I been doing how can this be? I think there was probably a moment of confusion, maybe, because he thought he was doing the right thing. And then he realizes, I, I'm on the wrong mission. I'm completely doing the wrong thing. And as he sees himself the way God sees him, which I believe is what meekness is, seeing ourselves truly for who we are, his response to Jesus is, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And his life mission completely changed, and he became an amazing worker in the kingdom for Christ. What do you want me to do? Blessed are the meek. And the second part of that beatitude was, for they shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? What does that mean? Is that, I think we realize that's maybe not totally a present reality, somewhat. There's ways that it is. It's also a future reality. The meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, one observer, or one person wrote about this, I thought was interesting. He said, uh, how is this, in a, in a present sense, how do the meek inherit the earth? In other words, how, when you think of inheritance, it's something you get after, after someone dies. But in this case, um, what does it look like to inherit the earth? And he says, a man who is truly meek is a man who is always satisfied. He is a man who is already content. 
Now, that doesn't mean his life got necessarily better. Of course, there's peace and there's joy, but in a physical sense, we know that Paul's life went from, um, you know, being the top man and, and being the one who's sent out to persecute the church to enduring tremendous persecutions and perils and all these things he lists. Those, so it doesn't necessarily mean an easy life. So how can a person find contentment? Well, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 6.10. And he, he got done listing all these hard things that he goes through and all these persecutions and, and these difficulties. And then he says in verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. So in other words, it, it's, a new, it's a new way of thinking. He no longer views his success or his whatever he has as what is present. He realizes that there is a far greater weight of glory coming. And there's also a joy that he has because he knows he's following Christ. So he's in one hand, he says, it's, I have nothing, and yet I have everything. And that everything is what really matters. That's the eternal. So this morning, if you're here and you feel like, you know what, I don't have much. Well, if you're in Christ Jesus, you have everything. And that's the reality for, for us in the kingdom of God. As Jesus gives the Beatitudes on this one, I think there's a possible chance that this one actually links back to the Psalms. Blessed are the poor, or, I'm sorry, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. If uh, I have it up here, if you want to turn your Bibles there, you can. But in Psalm chapter 37, this is where we find that phrase, first of all. I'd like to read down through here uh, very briefly. This is a Psalm of David. And again, we've talked a lot about just the hardship of David and all these things he experiences. And sometimes in this earth, it seems like the bad guys win. That's how David felt. Why is it that the evildoers, they seem to prosper? And I'm not making it. And I'm having a, I'm having a hard time. Some of you are having a hard time staying awake. Would you stand for a little bit? David says, I'm having a hard time. Let's read this here. Um, join me if you can read that on the screen up there. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord, and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger, and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Thank you. You may be seated. I saw in some commentaries, it, it mentioned that this was possibly a psalm written on behalf of cap, the captivity in Babylon. Um, Timing-wise, yeah, that would be at a, at a later time. So my Bible show this as being a psalm of David. So I'm not quite sure the situation. However, I'm sure even in that captivity, this would have been a psalm that they would have looked at for, like, we need some hope here. And I'm just going to mention a few words. First of all, he counsels here, don't be envious against them. It might look like things are going well for them. 
It might look like uh, the path you're on is not a path of success, but don't envy them. And then he gives a couple key words. Verse 3, he says, trust in the Lord, do good. The next verse, he says, delight thyself also in the Lord. So trust him, delight in him, enjoy being with him, in his, being in his presence. Verse 5, commit your way unto the Lord. So trust him, delight in him, and then make a choice. Commit your way. God, I'm going to follow you. This is the path I'm going to be on. He's going to bring it to pass. And then verse 7, rest. Rest in the Lord. If you're spending time in his presence, if you've committed your way to him, you say, Lord, I'm going to follow you no matter what, rest. Your soul can be at rest. Wait patiently for him. Verse 9, it said, For evildoers shall be cut off. Those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. So there's one reference to inheriting the earth. The ones who wait, the ones who patiently wait, and they keep following God, even though it seems like it's nothing's happening. But then that last verse in 11, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. There again, uh, this, I think this is maybe something Jesus refers back to. So for anybody from Israel, they, they had the histories of captivity. They had visual pictures of what it's like to be in bondage. You know, Egypt, then you come out. Babylon, then you come out. Uh, when the Assyrians took them captive. So you have these captivities, and then you have hope, and you have restoration. So it's that same picture. The meek shall inherit the earth. So for us today as Christians, what does that mean? What does it mean to be meek and inherit, that we will inherit the earth? We can have hope that someday God is going to bring all things to right. So if your present reality today, maybe sometimes is a bit discouraging, you think that, you know what? I wish it could be better. Somehow following Christ doesn't always seem like it pays off. Well, we have, we have promises. We have hope. It doesn't all come in this earth but there is future realities. This is what an early church, one of the early church fathers, he said about it. Uh, this would actually have been uh, Irenaeus said this in one of the first couple centuries. And he's talking about Abraham waiting patiently on God. And this is how they would have interpreted this, this uh, statement, blessed are the meek. Says this, Abraham patiently awaited the promise of God and he was unwilling to receive from men that which God had promised to give him. For he again said to Abraham as follows, I will give this land to your seed from the river of Egypt, even to the great river Euphrates. So then God promised Abraham the inheritance of the land, yet he did not receive it during all the time of his sojourn here. Therefore, it must be that he will receive it at the resurrection of the just, together with his seed, that is, those who fear God and believe in him. For his seed is the church who received the adoption by God through the Lord. As John the Baptist said, God is able from the stones to raise up children to Abraham. God promised the earth to Abraham and his seed, yet neither Abraham nor his seed, that is, those who are justified by faith, at the present time receive any inheritance in it. Rather, they shall receive it at the, at the resurrection of the just. For God is true and faithful. So on this account, he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That was an early church understanding that sometimes the reality is, is maybe we don't see the benefits in this life all the time, but there's a constant hope that we look for. He says, those who have the faith of Abraham, we see that in New Testament, those who have the faith of Abraham are the children of Abraham, and we also get to receive the promises that were given to him as well. 
I want to close here, and I'd like to just close with some scripture here. As I read through, I did a search on the word meek. I did a search on the word meekness. You can do the same as well. It spoke to me, and I want to leave you with scriptures and let those scriptures uh, speak to you as well. And as we read these scriptures, um, remember back the passage I read earlier when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, how he says that we are to walk in the Spirit. We're to keep in step. So as you hear these scriptures, reflect on whether or not you're in step with the Spirit of God. Is the fruit there? And are you walking with Him? So listen to these scriptures as we go through them. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Colossians chapter 3. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be thankful. It's interesting that in this passage, the other ones seems like meekness is a fruit of the Spirit. And yet here in verse 12, he says, put it on. Put on meekness. There's, a, there's, a, there's an opportunity for us to respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. But he says, put it on. Do it. First Timothy 6, 6 to 12. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is, a, is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and have pierced them through, some, themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses." The mark of these different descriptions always includes meekness, lowliness of mind, having the spirit and attitude of our master, Jesus. James 1, 19 to 22. Wherefore, my beloved brother, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness... And superfluity of naughtiness, that's King James, that actually means an overflow of wickedness. An overflow, he says, lay that away, the overflow of wickedness. And receive with meekness the engrafted or the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So we, with meekness, we take in the word. And the last one here, James chapter 3, 13 to 18. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works 
with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. I hope and pray that we will be counted among those who are meek and will inherit the earth. Shall we pray? Father, we see your character in the life of Jesus, in the life of 